This week, I read a summary of Rick Ufford Chase's interpretation of this passage. Some of you may know him. He served as the moderator of the PCUSA General Assembly between 2004 and 2006. So this interpretation is not coming from some random person on the internet, but actually somebody of quite a bit of influence within the denomination. He said this of this passage. He said, I believe this is a miracle of sharing. That the disciples, one at a time, added their food to the collection so that it totaled enough for the haves to provide for the have-nots. With leftovers, even. I've got a little here, said one disciple, and others followed suit. He then used this interpretation to conclude that the PCUSA needs to use this miracle by men to solve the problems of globalism, economic and ethnic isolation, and evangelism. What do you guys think about that? Well, if I told you this story out of context, I might be able to convince you of that. You might be able to read it out of context to maybe understand that. But that's why we go through the scriptures. Those of you who have been traveling with us through the whole Gospel of Matthew so far would know that that doesn't make any sense. And furthermore, it doesn't make sense within its own context for several reasons. Uh, one, first of all, none of the four, all four of the Gospels record this miracle, by the way. It's the only one recorded in all four Gospels. And none of them say anything like that, or even give any hint or of that type of interpretation. Uh, secondly, nobody walks around with enough food for this miracle. We're going to talk about how many people were actually involved in this miracle in a few minutes. Third, if this miracle was collective you know, through the disciples all helping out together. Why did, in John chapter 6, they try to take Jesus afterwards and make him an earthly king? If this was a collective effort, why give all the credit to one guy? If that's to be taken seriously. It it, it just doesn't make sense. (laughs) You know, one of the most influential pastors in my own life once said that he is terrified of standing behind a pulpit and saying, thus says the Lord, when God did not say something. There should be a holy hesitation to speak unless you're sure of what you're saying when you're proclaiming God's word. And you know, that's that's what keeps him up at night. That's what keeps me up at night preparing these sermons. And I would have hoped that a moderator and a director of several large Presbyterian organizations would have done his homework, would know better. But don't get me wrong, uh, sharing, compassion, generosity, those aren't bad points. And I can show you places in the New Testament and all throughout the scriptures where we ought to be generous and share with one another and work together as the body of Christ. But this passage is not one of them. (laughs) And to Take this passage and make it about the disciples rather than Jesus is frankly outrageous. As we'll see, as we unpack this in context, this narrative is not about working together to solve a problem. It's about the disciples being given an impossible task and learning to trust that Jesus alone offers the solution. That's what this passage is talking about. Let me show you what I mean beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot into the towns. When Jesus heard the news of the death of John the Baptist, which we talked about last week, 
he withdrew from the crowd to a desolate place to be with his father, you know, in private. And by the way, as much as I rightfully point out the errors in others, you know, I have to point the finger at myself from time to time and admit I make the wrong emphases. I have mine too. Look, I know I'm prone to action. I'm prone to doing, prone to immediately jumping to the next Bible study, to the next out, planning the next outreach, planning the next whatever it is. That's, that's, that's kind of how I'm wired in this season. Uh, but I need the reminder that Jesus often withdrew to spend time with the Father. He would, he would withdraw from the craziness to spend time with the Father. And if Jesus prioritized that, if he made time for that, my goodness, I do too. We all should. <laughs> Even when I'm on vacation, you know, after I get the kids to bed, I'm tempted to just break out the laptop and start working on my next sermon. I have to purposely bring a book just to read for pleasure, just to take my mind and focus it on something else. Purposely force myself to do that. We all need to remember that often in Christ, less is more so long as we are spending more time with him at the expense of whatever other good things we might be working on. Verse 14 goes on. It says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. (laughs) Unlike Nazareth, where he couldn't do miracles due to their unbelief, they have the opposite problem here. Instead of skepticism, people are met with a level of anticipation. They're meeting, expecting something of Jesus. And there's something to that, by the way. I don't have time to unpack that this morning, but there's something about when we show up expecting God to move, God has a way of doing things. We all ought to do that. But after a full day of healing, (laughs) evening was rapidly approaching as we pick back up in verse 15. This says, now when it was evening... The disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. (laughs) This is an impossible task. They could not possibly accomplish this uh, in any way. Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark notes that they, if they had eight months' wages, they couldn't afford to feed, feed this many people. And they're not exactly right down the street from the marketplace either. It says they're out in a desolate place. There's nothing around. So what are they to do? Well, in John chapter 6, where this is also recorded, John says that Jesus asked them this. To test them. Interesting. What is he testing? He's testing to see how the disciples are going to respond when given an impossible situation. Would they try to do it anyway, arrogantly believing in themselves that somehow we can band together and make it happen? There's nothing we can't do. Or would they do what they would later do in this passage and hand their problem to Jesus? Because that is the key to the solution that we find in verse 18, where it simply says, he said to them, bring them here to me. Speaking of those loaves and those fish, bring them to me. By the way, did you notice that the disciples made a mistake in verse 17? Did you guys catch it? 
I missed it too the first couple of times I read this. They said we have only five loaves and two fish. What did they forget to count? Jesus. That's a pretty big omission. (laughs) They forgot to list Jesus in their list of assets. Anyone could figure out that five loaves and two fish isn't enough to feed thousands of people. Anybody can figure that out. But what they needed to learn was that their problems were too big in their own eyes and that God was too small in their own eyes. That God, that their problems plus God is not a problem. God is bigger than any problem. He offers a greater solution than there are problems in this world. And they needed to learn this. Because we are still to this day, so many of us think, think things backwards. Let me put this in heart, in easier terms for us to grasp. Imagine if I were to task you to give away $1 million. Now, if your budget looks anything like mine, you just got anxiety. (laughs) That's an impossible task for me. I can't give away what I do not have. I mean, my yet-to-exist grandkids will be paying off that loan. So, yeah, that's that's torturous. That's hard. That's heavy on the throat, on the mind. That's anxiety-producing. But let's change the analogy for a second. Let's say a very wealthy philanthropist approached you and said, I want to give away $1 million, and I want to hire you to do it for me. Everything just changed. I'm looking at some of you, I'm seeing your body language change just as I said that. There's just a, ah. Why is that? Because everything about this analogy just changed. It's no longer burdensome because I don't have to raise the capital to give away. It's already there. Somebody's already raised it for me. And now I just get to give it away. I no, the, I no longer am preoccupied with the pressure of having to perform. I just get to give away what's been given to me and see the joy on people's faces as I do so. The task is now fun. Everything about this is different now. And my friends, that's exactly what being a Christian is all about. That's exactly what gospel work is all about. (laughs) Because, I mean, the, the power for the task does not come from you or from me. You know, I just get the pleasure of taking the incomparable riches of Christ, have it pass through me unto others. That's a wonderful thing. (laughs) <laughs> that and it's great. You know, some of you guys who in just just an hour or so away are gonna be reaffirming your commitment to be an elder or to step up to become a deacon. And look, that that's exactly what you guys are signing up for. To have that happen to you. You know, that that the having the pleasure of watching God work through you and this church to just bless others. You get a wonderful vantage point to see God work. Because it's not that you already have enough and we just have to figure out a better way to coordinate distribution like that prior minister had said. But we're gonna, but rather, we're gonna take the little bit that we do have, knowing it's not enough for the task, place it into Jesus' hands, and just watch him do his thing with it. 
Watch him do the impossible. Because in his hands, nothing is impossible. He has enough even when we don't. And it's a wonderful thing to watch our Savior at work. And by the way, the means of which that Jesus accomplishes this miracle amaze me. I love this as we pick back up in verse 19. Because he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, thankful for what he has, even though it's not enough for the task, blessing it. And he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets, 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. So much to unpack here. I love this. I love that Jesus handed the food to his disciples to distribute. That's, that's, that's more profound than we realize. Because you see, he could have just manifested a mountain of food behind him and told the people, come and get it. But he didn't do that. He didn't. You see, this is one of the coolest parts about how Jesus works. He didn't need to work through his disciples. He chose to anyway, though. He chose to work through his people. And I I love that because Jesus doesn't need us, but he uses us anyway. He wants to include us in part of his plan. I love that. See, because God doesn't need this church. God doesn't need any church. There is no ministry that's too big to fail. God can still work through any means. And he chooses to work through us anyway and does miraculous things through them. And the coolest thing is because from the best that we can tell, as I said, there was no mountain of food in this, in this narrative. So the, the miracle might have even appeared invisible to the naked eye. You you get the impression from reading this that Jesus just took one loaf in his hand, handed it to a disciple, reached, reached, and there was another loaf, and he just kept handing it away until one disciple had enough, and he sent him away to one group of people. And then then the next disciple is waiting in line. He's doing the math in his head. He knows that there's not enough left, but he just keeps handing him stuff, not knowing where it's coming from. And then suddenly he has a full basket of food to give away. And as he's walking away to the next group of people, he's looking back and he sees more people getting things, knowing that there shouldn't be enough. That's amazing. Guys, that's what serving Jesus is like right there. It's one ordinary miracle after another. There shouldn't be enough, but yet there is. Suddenly, there's exactly what you need for the task right in front of you. You don't understand how it works, but suddenly it's happening. It's happening right in front of you. And look, there's no magic formula to this. But I do know that where God guides, God provides. If God's in it, there's going to be more than enough somehow. And sometimes that's, you know... Sometimes it's the case that you have to scale back as well. You know, I'm not saying we're always going to be wealthy and prosperous. That's not where I'm going with this. But sometimes he calls us to scale back, and that's fine too. But when God wants to bless something, there's always more than enough. I mean, think about it. How how much did they start with? Five loaves and two fish. How much did they end up with? Twelve baskets worth of stuff. Ending with more than you thought that, ending with more than you began with. 
God works in mysterious and wonderful ways. You know, in the same way, when we do the drastically ordinary stuff of this life, when we do it in his name, amazing things happen. Guys, there's nothing more ordinary than just picking up your Bibles and reading it. There's nothing more ordinary in the Christian life than just praying to God. Just simply from the heart, not rehearsed prayers or anything like that, just praying from the heart. There's nothing miraculous about it seemingly at first. But as you do that, as you make a habit of doing that, you look back on your life once you start and you're like, wow, I've changed. Since I've been going to church, since I've been reading my Bible, since I've been reaching out to God in prayer and being in fellowship with the other saints, I've grown as a Christian. I'm not struggling with that sin that used to plague my life all the time. I'm more loving towards other people. I'm more patient with other people. I care more about the things of God now than ever before. And that didn't happen miraculously, a great light shining around you as you're walking down Broadway. No, it just seems as normal as reading a book and talking to your best friend. (laughs) The ordinary miracle of sanctification taking place in each of our lives, the process of being more like Jesus, where God draws nearer to us as we draw nearer to God, just as James 4 tells us. So the question comes back to this. What are you going to do about these truths? Now that it's been said, what are you going to do? Where is your faith going to be engaged in this season? What ministry here at the church are you going to support? You know, it doesn't matter if it's something with a title in it, like that matters to God. (laughs) Whether you're an elder, a deacon, you're working behind the scenes on something, or if you're just volunteer to help us lug around some of the equipment for some of the outreaches we're going to be doing when the weather gets better. Look, all of it, all of it is important. There is no task too great or too small for God. (laughs) And speaking of which, let me just say, many of you will give me an amen on this. This whole church is an ordinary miracle. Because look, we, we, we've been in touch, you guys will vouch for me, some of you guys, with some people who uh, are involved in several fellowships in this area, have some level of influence, and they are perpetually amazed by what happens at this church. Now, they'll remark about how other churches are larger or more well-funded, but nothing's going on at some of those churches, in their own words. I haven't been there myself, but this, com- this is witness. And But here, when they come here, things are happening. They hear about things happening at this church. They hear about the sweetness of the fellowship that we have, you know, up here before and after service. They, talk, they hear about the sweetness of the fellowship we have downstairs for our coffee hour. They hear about the sweetness of, you know, the, the amazing things God's doing through the food pantry and other various means, the outreaches we have coming up, and they're just amazed at what God is doing here. And look, I'm not saying this to just toot my own horn here. That's not the point. I'm saying that people look at us and say, this doesn't make sense. But yet it does when you put it in a biblical perspective. When you do things God's way, you're going to get God's blessings. When you you honor God, God will take care of his thing. If this is his church, his ministry, then he's going to do things his way in ways beyond human comprehension. So long as it is, after all, his church. 
Because after all, you know, look, at the end of the day, we got problems like any other church does. <laughs> Evans, your pastor has problems like any other person does. But we are taking our problems, we're taking our situations, and we're placing them into the hands of Jesus. And we're watching him do his thing with it. It's exciting to be a part of it. Now, we don't serve, again, tying this all back to our text. We don't serve because we have to. We don't serve because Jesus needs his disciples or else, heavens, what's going to happen? No, we serve because we get to. We serve because we want to be a part of what God is doing here. That's what it's about. So with that in mind, let's close with verse 21 that says, And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. You guys ever catch that? So this really wasn't the feeding of the 5,000, was it? It was actually quite more. Some of the lower estimates I've read say there was probably about 10,000 people there. And because, you know, women and children were a group that Jesus was very, very fond of and very cared for when a lot of the society did not recognize their worth at least the way they ought to have been back then. I could imagine quite a big turnout, actually. I've heard some estimates as high as 20,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's pretty impressive, especially when you consider that God was able to feed all of those people, potentially 20,000 people, through one little boy's meal, as we learn from other Gospels. That's where these loaves and fish came from. Imagine what God could do with what's in your hand. Imagine what God can do with what you can offer to him. And if multiplied the way it happened here, Lord only knows the impact that could be made. You know, I want to close with the words of actually one of our hymns. I was thinking about flipping the script and doing this this hymn next, but I want to be fair to (laughs) Phyllis and Sharon. (laughs) The idea came to me pretty late. It's hymn number 415, He Giveth More Grace. A lot of you guys know this one. It's, it goes like this. It goes, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we've exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we've reached the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's giving has only begun. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of the infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And few words really grasp what the Christian life is about like that hymn does. When we've reached the end of our hoarded resources, when we're done, when we've got nothing left to offer, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Because it's not in our strength. It's not in our work. It's not even in our collective work. It's what Jesus alone is able to do miraculously through his disciples. If you have not experienced that grace for yourself this morning yet, I invite you, call upon the name of Jesus. Experience this incredible power of his grace. Because look, the only thing more impossible than feeding between ten and 20,000 people with your lunch is trying to atone for your own sins. That is infinitely harder than that task. Because Isaiah said that 
Our own righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy and perfect God. We come think, thinking we're dressed in our own goodness and righteousness to present ourselves, but God looks at it as if we're just wearing spoiled, dirty laundry. That's what we're really compare, like compared to a holy and perfect, sinless God, even with our best of intentions lumped in. So no, we need something more than that. We need to be dressed in his righteousness alone to trade our spoiled and stained robes for his. For, to be dressed in his righteousness. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to do what many others have done to admit your own inadequacy, to stand before a holy and perfect God dressed in your own good works. You don't want to be found that way on that day. To repent of your sins and your self-sufficiency and admit that our sin problem is a bigger problem than we can solve in our own strength. And trust in Jesus alone for our salvation and saving. Trusting in the one who gave himself on the cross for our sins. Taking away the, the shame and blessing us with that gift of his righteousness. As John 6 Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, speaking of himself, speaking of what he would do for us, if anyone eats of his bread, partakes in his righteousness, he will live forever. Call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of Jesus this morning. You will be amazed of what he will do in your life. Thanks be to God. Amen.